So we are concluding our sermon series on the prayers of the saints today. We're going to begin here with a scripture from the book of Romans, from Paul's letter to the Romans. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 12, verses 2 through 4. Paul writes this, Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can figure out what God's will is, what is good and pleasing and mature. Because of the grace that God gave me, I can say to each one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Instead, be reasonable, since God has measured out a portion of faith to each one of you. We have many parts in one body, but the parts don't all have the same function. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I don't know if you knew this, but just 30 miles, 30 miles northwest of here is a town, Wright City, Missouri. And in Wright City, in 1892, a baby boy was born who would become one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. Isn't that amazing? Right here in Wright City. Now, Reinhold Niebuhr is his name, and that might be a name that's maybe not quite as familiar to you as some of the saints whose prayers we've done in other weeks of this series. But after his death, in 1971, Time Magazine called him the greatest Protestant theologian in America since Jonathan Edwards. Now, if you don't know who Jonathan Edwards was, you got to go way back. He's the guy who gave a sermon about sinners in the hands of an angry God in 1741, okay? So that's quite a compliment. I don't think Reinhold shared very much in common with Jonathan Edwards other than becoming this highly influential theologian. Reinhold was the son of a German evangelical pastor, and even though he moved to Lincoln, Illinois when he was 10 years old, he came back to St. Louis when he was 18 to attend Eden Theological Seminary in Webster Groves before he transferred and got his bachelor's and his master's degree from Yale Divinity School. And his little brother Richard, by the way, was almost as influential a theologian as Reinhold, and Richard did actually get both his bachelor's and divinity degrees here in St. Louis, his, his bachelor's at Eden and his master's at Wash U, before he then went on and got his Ph.D. from Yale. But we want to talk about Reinhold today. And from, from 1915 until 1928, this is throughout the years of World War I and right up to the start of the Great Depression, Reinhold served as the pastor of a small German evangelical church in Detroit before he left to become a seminary professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York. And he would teach there until his retirement in 1960. And it was while he was there at Union Seminary that he began to publish books and articles that really became enormously influential in Christian theology. Now, one of his very earliest works was called Moral Man and Immoral Society. And in that, in that book, he, he demonstrated his thesis that humans are more prone to sin as part of a group than they are when they're acting independently as individuals. And if you think about it, that actually is an idea that later helped to give rise to the entire psychology of groupthink, right? The idea of getting a group we all think together and act together. But there was an even more influential book that he wrote after that one. It was called The Nature and Destiny of Man. And again, he probed the depths of human nature and humanity's relationship with our Creator God. And he wrote about how difficult it really is for human beings to fully grasp 
the nature, the fundamental essence of God's law as taught by Jesus. To understand that what the cross means is that God doesn't overcome evil by destroying evildoers, but by taking their evil upon himself. That the love of God is a love expressed through willing suffering. That's really hard for us to understand as human beings, Reinhold wrote. But if that doesn't sound like some new theological insight to you, that's kind of the point. Okay, many, many of Reinhold Niebuhr's theological insights are so commonly held today that it's hard for us to even imagine that there was a day when these things weren't really understood in the same way. Well, if we look at this same book, this, this book, The Nature and Destiny of Man, Reinhold Niebuhr described this failure to really grasp this love of God, God's law, as an outcome of a deeper human problem. And he described that as the eternal tension that we live in between what he called our finitude and our freedom, okay, between two opposite realities of human existence. On the one hand, we are just finite human beings. We live lives of relatively short duration on a cosmic scale. We have limited control and influence. But on the other hand, God does extend to us the freedom to make real choices that really are capable of making a real difference in the world around us. And what Niebuhr wrote was that for any individual human being to truly thrive, they have to recognize and honor both aspects of their human nature. But what he also found is that when you dive into world history, when you study world history, it reveals our determination to always place one of these ways of being over and above the other. We either focus on our finite, limited nature. We take a fatalist approach that decides that the vast majority of humanity's problems are just too big for us to tackle. All we can do is leave it in God's hands, doing absolutely nothing about it. Or, or on the other hand, we deceive ourselves into believing that we really are supermen who are capable of doing literally anything and everything. If we just put everything into it, if we put our hearts and our minds and our souls into it, we can do anything. Well, in this book, The, the Nature and Destiny of Man, these ideas are fully explored. And in that book, that it came out somewhere between two and five years after the first publication of this prayer that we're focusing on today that's written by Reinhold Niebuhr, the message, the, the prayer that's commonly known as the serenity prayer. But I think it's really fascinating to, to look at this prayer, and in it you can see the seeds of this idea that he just expanded on in this book about the tension between our finite, limited nature as opposed to our ability to accomplish real change. And this prayer, I'm sure that this prayer is familiar to you because you can find this prayer like everywhere, okay? I mean, everywhere. It, since it was originally published 80 years ago, it's become like a hallmark of inspirational signs and cards, posters, magnets, you name it. And very rarely is it actually attributed to the guy who wrote it, Reinhold Niebuhr. And it was widely dispersed to soldiers during World War II, and Alcoholics Anonymous actually picked it up then and made it a core part of their 12-step program in the early 1940s. It's short, it's easily memorized, right? God, grant me the serenity 
to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I am almost sure every one of you has heard that prayer before, and I hope that you hear in those words the emphasis on living, on striving for that kind of life balance between our human limitations on the one hand and our freedom to act on the other, between the reality that there are things in this world that we simply cannot change and the reality that there are many things that we truly can. So you might have seen, put up here on the screen, you might have seen this very basic graphic representation of this idea before, right? It, each one of us lives, the little person and the mother, we live in the center of a sphere of control, control, right? These are the things in our lives that we are truly in absolute, total control of, right? Now, depending, depending on the social structure a human being lives in and the authority that you hold in it, that could be a really big sphere, how much authority you really hold in your job or in your family, in your life, or it could be a pretty small sphere, okay? But at a minimum, at an absolute minimum, Every one of us is in control of our thoughts and what we choose to do with them. That's actually why if you read a lot of kind of dystopian novels, right, Brave New World, 1984, books like that, they focus on the attempt by those in power to even control our thoughts, right, so that they can have absolute power because we are in control of what we think and what we do with our thoughts. But then, just outside that sphere of control, there's another sphere. It's called the sphere of influence, right? The sphere of influence. And these are things that I might not have full control of, but that I can wield influence to get people to behave the way I want them to, to act the way I wish they would act. Now, within that sphere of influence, it could be very strong, right? It could be a really strong influence, like the way we give advice to children or, or maybe the way we offer advice to a trusted friend or a colleague hoping they'll take it, or that influence could be weak. And the example I like to use for that is kind of when we decide we're going to write a letter to our congressman and think that's actually going to accomplish something. Uh, but but this, this sphere of influence, right, this sphere of influence contains those things that even if we can't control them, right, we can still bear a lot of influence. To be perfectly frank with you, right, this is the sphere that like Pastor David and I are operating out of when we stand up and preach on a Sunday morning, the sphere of influence, trying to influence you to live a godly life. But then, right, outside those areas and, and everything else, everything else lies outside of that. These are things we really can't control, absolutely can't control, and that we have no influence over either, right? And the serenity prayer that, that I read earlier, it concludes by asking God to help us to discern which aspects of our lives really are in reality in which of these spheres, regardless of where we might actually like them to be, where we wish they were. So each one of the three statements in the serenity prayer are full of biblical truth. They really are. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take a look at each one of them, okay? And we're going to begin with the beginning. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. All right, so this is obviously, obviously it's all about that outer sphere, right, of where we have no control, where we have no influence, right? So the definition of serenity, right, the state 
of being calm, peaceful, and untroubled. Doesn't that sound great? I love that. The state of being calm, peaceful, and untroubled. Well, the problem is, for every one of us, there's a lot of things that really are, they really are in that everything else sphere. They're beyond our control or our influence, but we desperately want them to be something that we can control, something we can change, and we end up beating our heads against the wall, spending a lot of time and energy trying unsuccessfully to control them. I remember when I was in college, right, my, my best friend's girlfriend would constantly tell me what she didn't like about him, but that she knew she'd be able to get him to change, right? And I said, no, you are not going to change that. And yeah, guess what? They broke up just a couple years after graduation because she got tired of him not changing and he got tired of her trying to get him to change, right? There's just a lot of things in that we cannot change them. And I think this tendency, all of us have this, this tendency we have to think we can change and influence things that we can't is part of what I think the Apostle Paul actually has in mind when he wrote this in our scripture lesson this morning. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. None of us are supermen. None of us are supermen. There are simply some things in life that are beyond our control, and that can be extraordinarily frustrating, whether they're little things, right, like how your boyfriend behaves, or whether they're big things, like the tragic death of a loved one that we wish we could change, or an earthquake that kills 30,000 people unimaginably, right? And those things, those things are especially frustrating if we have a personality type that likes to be in charge, in control. But the serenity prayer, right, what it does is, is the peace. It talks about the peace that God promises us that arises from a deep and abiding trust that even when life seems out of control, the world really is, it really is, in God's loving hands. And so the first part of that prayer, we pray for God to really help us to believe that, to make peace with it. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Well, you know, even though there are things, right, there are things in that sphere that, that we can't change, the serenity prayer doesn't let us get away with just sitting idly by when there are things that need to change that we do have the control and influence to change. So the middle part of the prayer actually says, God, grant me the courage to change the things I can. And the definition of courage is the ability to do something that frightens one. Okay, and I love this. If you've ever gone over and you eat at Big Chief, maybe you've seen this sign. It's right across the street over there. It's on the wall. This is John Wayne's definition of courage. On this sign over there, it says, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway, right? I, I love that definition. So even when we know that we could make a difference, that we could act to bring about real change, it can be terrifying to actually step into it. I mean, there are so many possible circumstances. It might mean confronting a supervisor who could fire us if we bring some kind of a workplace injustice to light. 
It might mean being subjected to public ridicule, right, for expressing an unpopular belief. It might just mean having to face our own internal insecurities and fears. But as Christians, we can never lose sight of the fact that our calling is to cooperate with God in the work of transforming our own lives so that we can then be partners with God for the transformation of the world, to have the courage to work to change the world, to become the place of justice and righteousness that God has always intended for it to be. And that takes courage, and that's why Paul writes, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then he calls upon us to use the, the unique gifts and talents that God has given each one of us to bring about real change, change for the better within our spheres of influence and control, which are different for each one of us, right? This prayer God gives us the courage to change the things we can is a prayer for God to help us transform our self-seeking ways into kingdom-seeking ways, to help us to control what we choose to do, how we choose to speak, what we choose to prioritize, what aspects of the culture around us we're going to accept or reject. Transforming our lives, as Paul calls us to, from the ways of the world to the ways of God's kingdom, choosing to allow God to literally change us from who we are into radically new and different people, that takes enormous courage. But God promises that he will be there every step of the way, right there with us. Part of the change that God does, really does make in us, is to fill us with his Holy Spirit, to empower us to have that kind of courage, the courage required to work for the kind of change God wants to help us accomplish in the world the courage to change the things we really can. Well, the final part of the serenity prayer goes like this. It says, God grant me the wisdom to know the difference. Because the truth is the lines between these spheres of control and influence and everything else, they're just not as clear cut as we might like them to be. So the dictionary definition of wisdom is the quality of having experience, knowledge, and good judgment. But you know what? According to the Bible, wisdom is also the product of a right relationship with God. Throughout the Bible's wisdom writings, we find this phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We can find that in many places in the Bible. It's in Proverbs 1-7, Psalm 111, verse 10, Isaiah 33-6. It is all over the Old Testament. Wisdom, real wisdom, is not only about having experience, knowledge, and good judgment, but having a solid understanding of who we really are, who we really are in relation to God. As Reinhold Niebuhr wrote, it's of understanding the balance in our God-created nature between the freedom God has given us to be his real agents of change in this world and the limits God has placed on our ability to control or even to understand everything about this amazing world God has created. Real wisdom is demonstrated, and then the ability to apply that kind of a balance in our daily lives every single day. And listen to what Paul wrote. The scripture passage from Paul says that the path to that kind of wisdom 
lies in cooperating with God's work of self-transformation. Paul says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, when you have done that, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, Paul says the end result of this self-transformation that God works in us is the ability to discern God's will for our lives. But to get there, right, to reach the kind of biblical wisdom that enables us to discern between what we can change and what we cannot, we need to use our God-given freedom to place ourselves in situations where we can learn to avoid, to learn to live avoiding the extremes of either our finite nature or our freedom to act. We need to choose to commit ourselves to discovering who God really is, really is, not merely who we want God to be. We need to spend time with the God who says, this is who I am, not with a God that we design after our own image. We need to immerse ourselves in God's revelation of himself to us in Jesus Christ, who shows us the truth of God's sacrificial suffering and self-giving love. And we need to pray without ceasing that God will give us that kind of wisdom. Well, this Wednesday, this Wednesday begins the holy season of Lent. Lent is a perfect time for each one of us with greater intentionality than ever to seek the heart of God for discernment, for discernment of what we can change, what we cannot change, what should change, what shouldn't change. Right? And so I hope you'll join us at beginning our Lenten journey is this Wednesday at 7 o'clock as our Ash Wednesday service. And Pastor David is going to begin our new sermon series then. It's called 40 Days with Jesus, about spending time with the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ this Lent to help us with our wisdom and discernment. But for now, let me invite you, as we conclude our sermon series, to join our voices. You have this on the card in your bulletin, but you may already know it too. Will you join me as together we say Reinhold Niebuhr's serenity prayer? God, Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.